Well, we're continuing on this journey through the last chapters of Mark's gospel in this uh, series called Amazed and Afraid, The Adventure of Following Jesus. Pretty much chapters 11 through 16 in Mark's gospel take place in Jerusalem or in the near area surrounding it. And it's in Mark's telling of the story, six days, the last six days of Jesus' earthly ministry, if you will. And the gospel slows down at this point. It's a third of the gospel in some ways, but it's an extension of, of time. It's, it's like we move from the immediacy of Mark's gospel and this kind of rapid pace all the way through the gospel. And then once Jesus gets into Jerusalem, everything kind of slows down. And, and much of the story is told surrounding the temple. And Jesus is going in, and in the first few days, Jesus is going in and, and outside of Jerusalem. He, he travels into Jerusalem and then goes out to Bethany to spend the night and then comes back in to Jerusalem. And he spends a lot of time in the temple in this particular section, in chapter 12 especially. And as the religious officials deal with him and, and listen to him and watch him do things like uh, what he does immediately before the passage that I'm going to read today, watching him clear the temple of the money changers, they begin to get a little bit nervous with him. And not just a little bit nervous, but Mark tells us that they begin to look for ways to destroy him. And so we're going to pick up the story today at the end of chapter 11 and read a couple of different places in chapter 12 as we continue on this part of Jesus' journey. So 11.27 through 12.12 and then over again to 12.38 through the end of the chapter. Again, they came to Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? They were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as a truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them, and this one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left and went away. And as Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes to be greeted with respect in marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to the story that we sometimes do not see and therefore fail to respond to. Help us to see the marvelous thing that you are doing in our presence and to find energy in that awareness. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Since Marianne and I moved up here in December of 1994, we've often had, those were both native Californians, we've often had the question, so, so how are you doing? What, what do you miss most about California? And, you know, it's 27 years now, so we don't get that question as much. But every once in a while, people still ask it. And, you know, it took me a while to figure out what I missed most I because there was a lot that I didn't miss it was a, a wonderful place to move and it came at a at a good time in our lives but ultimately it boiled down to two things that I thought that I missed most and one was the sun in the sky <laughs> not just an imagined reality but a real experience of the sun in the sky and waves at the beach I loved to body surf and Puget Sound doesn't have waves and in the water is too cold. So, uh, but it was the sun in the sky and waves at the beach. And as I've, as I've thought about it more and more, the other thing that I miss that relates to waves and sun in, in some ways is that the churches that I grew up in in California, the churches that I served in California, they all had patios. And the patios were these places of gathering. They were this sort of residual of Spanish uh, architecture and Mexican influence in Southern California. And so all the churches had patios and you, that's where your fellowship hour was. It was outside. And it made perfect sense to have your fellowship hour outside on the patio and just go into the fellowship hall when you have to, for heaven's sakes. Why not just stay out on the patio? But of course, patios in the Northwest are a stupid idea. <laughs> I still miss them. And one of the most memorable patios was in the first church that I served in Ventura on the coast in California. This church was up on a bluff, and so its patio had both sun and a view of the waves because we had a view of the ocean from the, the patio. It was rather idyllic, and, and patio fellowship was just a normal thing that happened unless the weather was 
bad, and then we went into the fellowship hall, which was just off the patio. But uh, it was a, a lovely space where, you know, all of these kind of friendly, happy, nicely dressed people were sipping coffee and enjoying the sun, and it was a good place to be. But my friend Bob, who went to the church one time, said to me, he said, you know, the patio's great, but if you want to know what's really happening in people's lives, you need to go out to the parking lot. <laughs> and then he told me a story of uh, having seen a, a woman walk from the church library with a book in her hand that said, Where is God When It Hurts? That was the title. And then later on saw her weeping in her car out in the parking lot. And he said, if you want to know what's really going on, it's not really going to be told to you in places like the happy patio. It's going to be told to you in places where the people who feel on the margins and feel vulnerable are because they, they don't really feel like they have a place on the patio. And that's so often the case, I think, in those kind of beautiful, big, formal, majestic spaces that the church has. The, the way that we present and the, the questions that we ask uh, are very different in those big and beautiful spaces than they are in those private spaces where, where no one is watching. The concerns of religion and the religious practices are not always in tune with what the Spirit is doing in people's lives. And sometimes in those places of formal celebration, we, we hide what's really happening. The temple is a place like that in much of Jesus' teaching in these particular passages because the concerns of the religious aristocracy that people had, the religious aristocracy that, that they had about who Jesus was and, and what he was teaching, and the, the kinds of things that people came to the temple to receive in terms of the rituals that they participated in, were not necessarily the questions that were close to the hearts of people. And it, it was a place to, to certainly receive some aspect of, of religious affirmation, but not necessarily the place to work through it. And Jesus had a way in his teaching of really calling people out, and he called out especially the religious leaders in the passage that we read today. And the concerns of the temple are concerns for right behavior and, and right practice, and where did you get the authority to teach these things? And all of those religious questions are what are being dealt with in this particular passage. And so the, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they're a little bit miffed that he doesn't quote the rabbis very much. He's not much for footnotes. And Judaism, for the most part, is all about footnotes. It's all about the tradition of the rabbis and, and what they've said and the, the age-old argument and quoting sources of authority to say, you know, there's a reason we do things this way. And it's good in that way. And it's a, the Talmud is a gift, you know, to the religious world as it records, you know, just ages and ages and ages of, of rabbinic conversation and, and argument about certain things. But Jesus didn't quote the rabbis. He quoted the prophets, but he didn't, he didn't participate in sort of 
claiming his authority from a particular school or a particular rabbi. And so people said about him that he speaks as one having authority. He doesn't quote the authorities. He speaks as one having authority. And so the rabbis are approaching him at this point, the Sanhedrin, the, the scribes and others approach him and said, by what authority do you say these things? And, and Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. By what authority did John the Baptist come? And John was very popular among the people, but he wasn't popular among the religious aristocracy at all because he was basically saying, hey, the stuff going on in that temple is great, but your heart ought to reflect it. And he was calling people out to the wilderness to be baptized and to do something that made a difference in their lives and the way they behaved. And so he was not one of the insiders of the religious tradition. And so Mark records that kind of inner dialogue that the religious officials have when Jesus asks this question, whose authority did John come from? And they know that politically they're stuck on that one because if they say from God, then they're really kind of denying what they believe. And yet if, if they say from uh, his own authority, then they offend the people who really believed he was from God. And so Jesus basically says, you know, you want to ask me to play this authority game. You don't want to play it yourself. I'm not playing either. Uh, and he says, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he's working obviously with a very fearful and protective lot of folks. And as he understands this and does this, he tells a parable. And it's not a very complimentary parable because he likens the religious officials to a group of tenants and of a vineyard who basically keep killing the owner's slaves and finally kill the owner's son in the hope that they can get the vineyard for themselves. In other words, they're, they're not really handling in a careful way the thing that is not theirs. That's the point that Jesus is making there. In fact, they're acting like it's theirs and, and not the owner of the, the vineyard. And so these wicked tenants are guarding and hoarding what they should have been stewarding. And as Jesus tells this parable, he ends with another quotation from the Halal, the 118th Psalm, the song that the people are singing as he enters the city of Jerusalem and basically says, you know, you're essentially the tenants. You're the ones who are rejecting the cornerstone, rejecting the true owner, acting like something that you're stumbling over when actually that true owner is the cornerstone, the one who, upon whom the whole thing and the one who gives direction to the whole thing. And God is doing a marvelous work <laughs> right now. It's, it's marvelous in our eyes. So behold it and, and open your eyes to it. And so they heard loud and clear what Jesus was saying. And what Jesus was saying was far from complimentary. In fact, it was quite condemning. And what we've got in this passage is really what the prophets decry throughout the Old Testament. It's what Jesus works with in the New Testament. It's that this conflict between relationship with God and religion, the tendency of religion to put God in a box and keep him there so that he can be explained and obeyed and they can enforce the rules. It's this age-old dilemma that Hosea the prophet talks about when he says, my contention with, is with you, O priests, 
for my people suffer from a lack of knowledge, and that's a lack of knowledge of God. And that's exactly what's going on in this passage as Jesus confronts the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the other religious officials. And he essentially says, you're tripping over me like I'm some impediment to righteousness. But it's actually you who are diverting attention away from the work of God. It's just put out there. And they want to kill him all the more because of this. And to hit home this point, Jesus takes his disciples then to observe something happening in the temple. And this is where we get back to the part about the difference between the patio and, and the parking lot, if you were wondering where, where that was going. But they go and sit across from the treasury. And they're all just sort of quietly watching what happens as people put money into this treasury bowl or box or whatever it is. And Jesus notices a widow who is very different than the others who are putting in great sums of money. They're like those Pharisees that he decries earlier that love to be seen in the marketplace and, and love to be noticed for their religious piety. And so there are those who are being noticed for their great abundance. But the one who goes unnoticed is the elderly widow who puts in two copper coins. And what Jesus does is, is obviously just make the point that on the one hand, those putting in the abundance are calling attention to themselves. It's no act of devotion. Yet on the other hand, there is this one who is in the place where no one is really noticing her, putting in an insignificant amount that would catch no one's attention. And he identifies her as the, the one in whom God's work is actually happening. I think it's the application of that line, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Did you see it? Did you see the real truth that was going on here amidst all of the other show? Did you understand what was happening in the life of this one who was unnoticed and on the margins and how she was closer to the kingdom than any of the great religious thinkers who occupy this space? It's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And this marvelous thing isn't religious rectitude. It isn't perfection. It isn't having everything lined up. It's love and gratitude born of knowing oneself to have been loved by God. And so we return to the point that we can never hear enough because it all boils down my friends, if we're going to walk this way of Jesus, it all boils down to relationship, to those invitations Jesus never stops issuing. Follow me, come and see, abide with me, and most importantly, let me abide with you. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Keep our eyes focused on you as you are up ahead and showing us the way. 
and lead us into those places where we grow, where we learn, where we understand who we are to you. And so help us by the power of your spirit to reflect that identity in all that we are and all that we do. For we pray in your name. Amen.